0: Hi, I'm Holly Cairns, a TD for Cork Southwest, and this is my podcast.
1: So, welcome back to the podcast. Um, I'm Claire. I'm here with our local TD, Holly Cairns, and her amazing parliamentary assistant, Richard. Hello. Um, so, today we decided we are going to discuss agriculture uh, because it's a very topical issue at the moment. Um, in the last week of July, many of you may have seen that all of the headlines were about the sectoral targets for emissions and agriculture got all of the attention because there was a dispute over how far they need to go. So Holly, can you can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, it's difficult to know where to start. I think important to highlight that what the government has decided to do is basically aim to not achieve our targets in relation to climate action and I think that's the most important point in all of this. So we know that climate change is the biggest issue facing the country, the world. It's so important and I think really outrageous that our government is aiming to fail. That's what the result of those negotiations were. So basically there was, you know, because we know it's such a big issue, there was an independent climate change advisory council set up to make sure the decisions were made based on science, um, on what needs to be done and kind of free from political influence.
1: And so is that an Irish-based thing? Or is yeah. that a European, it's Irish-based? Irish-based. Okay.
0: Because we know that, like, agriculture has always been dogged by vested interests and the lobby group in the farming mm. sector is like no other, as far as I can tell, uh, professional lobbyists. And, yeah, so the Climate Change Advisory Council was recommending that agriculture would reduce its emissions by 30% and that's much lower than other sectors. They were going to reduce by 60%. And I can, like, understandably, you can imagine for farming communities, they're like, this is our livelihood. How can this happen? How are we going to do this? And then that's, you know, the, the lobbying starts. We can't reduce by 30%. And like that feeling that is so understandable in farming communities, we can't do this. How are we going to do this? We, we, we're not going to is because there has been no planning. There's been no reassurance. This is how it's going to be done. We're going to protect incomes. This is what the Just Transition Fund is for. That's why we have a carbon tax to make sure that this happens in a just and fair way. And, you know, first and foremost, we have to make sure that we prevent irreversible natural disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And that could and should have been done. People have been talking about this for years. Um, I remember being one of the main motivations of going into politics. It was so annoying to see. There's also this narrative that like, oh you know, any change in relation to climate action in the agriculture sector would kind of decimate rural communities and Irish farming families, whereas, like, in actual fact, it's very obvious that the opposite is true. But in the very short term, with no plan and a government that seems to just be so oblivious to how important this is, that is the reality. It would feel like a cliff edge, like there's been no consultation, there's been no planning, but ultimately we know if we have to reduce emissions and sequester carbon, we should be saying, like you know, I grew up on a farm, it's a small business. All of our farms are essentially small businesses and we have to make ends meet. So if we know we have to reduce emissions and sequester more carbon, the government subsidises the production of food already a lot. But for example, you don't get subsidised to produce fruit, veg, anything like that, any kind of horticulture, but you do for livestock. So you move the financial incentive, the subsidy towards things that are more environmentally friendly. It's very kind of, sounds like a very obvious way to put it and there's loads more that needs to be done, but there has been no planning, no engagement with farming communities, absolutely nothing. And the kind of, I think, because we had meetings like quite a lot in the last few weeks with all the different Mm -hmm. farming groups with the um, Irish Creamy Milk Suppliers, with the IFA, with the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farm Association, like, and we do regularly anyway. But people would come in to the often meet them and really pushing for like, we can only go to, you know, 22% or really 18% is the only viable one, but you really talk to the groups, they understand, they accept the science, they know it needs to be done, they do need support, though, and without that support, they can't do it. And that's, I think, really what they're saying. And I think I could be wrong on this, but my take is that they didn't think they would be able to lobby the government to not reach our climate targets that we have to meet by getting a twenty-five percent deal instead of thirty. I think that they were lobbying to say they can't do this so they would get support when it happens, and now mm-hmm. can't believe how much power they actually have. And I think that like this government obviously know, like they're here till twenty twenty five, these changes will have to come in agriculture. They just don't want to be the government to do it, because they don't have the kind of political backbone to do what's required to make the necessary changes, and they know somebody else is gonna have to do it. So all it amounts to, in my opinion, is plumossing farmers. It's disingenuous and it's dishonest, and it will result in much more of a cliff edge. That cliff edge that most of us who are farming feel that like, how's mm-hmm. this going to work? The longer we leave it, the more of a cliff edge it's going to be, and that's like really kind of pathetic politics, in my opinion.
1: Absolutely. So basically, they should have the discussion around this. The consultation should have started years ago, but perhaps the government put their head in the sand, pretended that change didn't have to happen. And then that fed into kind of the farmers union saying the same thing. And that's why we're at this position now when change does have to happen. But farmers feel completely at sea because they have no support. There has been no discussion. And that's why they're reacting so strongly to this.
0: And when their representative organisations and their politicians are saying the same, it really reinforces that feeling of fear. And it's playing on people's fear instead of reassuring them that we can do this right. And if we had the political leadership, obviously we could. We have to anyway. (laughs) Um, So it's actually really kind of a really sad state of affairs. And it has kind of that divisive debate has always been kind of narrated by politics and farming representative groups, I think. And it's been just kind of amplified that it's like anything, any discussion around how we're going to reach our mission targets is somehow anti-rural Ireland, anti-farmer, all of this nonsense. It's really damaging. And so
1: who benefits from from that kind of narrative? Because it's not individual small farmers? Like, who who does this suit?
0: Yeah, like, the the whole policy... Of, so, recently we were asked, like, what, what things would you change to reach our emission targets? One of them was, like, to start basing policy on science. And, like, when you think about that, like, why? What's it being based on now? So we had, like, you know, the milk quotas were lifted so you could have as many cattle as you wanted. The result of that was obviously that the economy of scale grew and people had to have more cattle to make money like anything when you know if you have like a small scale business where you're selling if i make like 10 lasagnas and sell them in the farmer's market for like 10 euro each because they're it's local meat it's this it's that and it's really good quality and then like a supermarket somebody say duns comes to me and says we want to sell your lasagnas Mm -hmm. and you think great i've made it you know, that's kind of like small business dream. Here we go, rolling out around the country in all the shops. And then they're like, actually, we need them for two euro. Then, of course, you're like, OK, I have to buy the cheaper meat, the cheaper tomato sauce, because the economy scale grows so much. And then they can keep bringing the price down. So this is what happens. The producer then has no control over the price. Um, so the political decisions that have been made have benefited uh, big agri industry, they've massively benefited fertilizer companies, chemical fertilizer companies, and they kind of pretend they benefit farmers because like, look, you can produce as much as you want. But the result of that was that very many small farms had to close because they couldn't produce that amount. They couldn't afford to invest in more land to expand their farm, to intensify their production in that way. Mm-hmm. So it has led to the kind of demise of a lot of small farms. And like, it hasn't gone too far yet and that we still have some, <laughs> you know, but we're still moving towards that model. Um, And you see like all the backbench government TDs, you know, fighting to to prevent any reductions and basically to keep the trajectory going of increasing the herd, you know. Um, So we still see TDs fighting and pushing for that. But I kind of get it because you have all of those farming so-called representative groups coming in and telling you what they need, what they want and, you know, loads of people like you'd see the kind of the stuff that's flying at us online like Mm -hmm. you won't get re-elected in Cork southwest you know this kind of they they really they go hell for leather um and then like we always hear the same things rolled out so like one of the things people always say is like well who else is going to feed the world if Ireland doesn't and Mm -hmm. like I suppose just to start with that particular argument like just to zoom out massively there's one third of the food produced In the world goes to waste, and less than one third of the world's population is starving, and more than one third of the world's population is suffering from obesity-related illnesses. And this goes on. You know, it's the kind of the distribution of food and the Mm -hmm. politics of food. Food is a real problem. It's not that we don't produce enough. And like, I fully accept that we have growing populations and we have to cater for that. But degrading all of our soil quality isn't going to do that. It's going to do the opposite, which is what's happening with the amount of chemicals that's going into the soil at the moment. Then we have the argument that, like, next thing we'll be importing beef and dairy.
1: Yeah, I saw that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is funny how there is kind of talking points, isn't it? There's talking points. Yeah.
0: And we're so far from importing beef and dairy. Like ninety percent of our um, produce is, that it's exported. So, can you imagine how much we'd have to reduce it before we'd actually end up importing it? Mm-hmm. Nonsense argument. Not true. Um, And the other one is if we don't produce it, other people will. And I suppose like I remember going to like an open day of a big cheese company and they were, you know, because they're always growing, always trying to encourage people to get more cattle. They'll take the milk, turn it into different products like obviously cheese, butter, Baileys, milk powder, powder for crisps, all this stuff. But like even with all of those markets um, that they're like selling globally like to africa all of these places they still were like trying to create new markets for this dairy because they couldn't like the amount of it mm-hmm. so at that time they were trying to like tap into or develop because the, the market doesn't exist the an asian pizza industry and they wanted to make mozzarella from cow's milk to supply that so trying to create a market for pizza in parts of asia that it doesn't exist just so it's not like we're feeding the starving world. They're desperately trying to create markets and we could be doing other things. You know, we, we're net calorie imports. We import most of our fruit and veg. All of those things, we import most of our feed for cattle and that used to be grown. The tillage sector has really negatively kind of been impacted by these changes as well as horse culture and other sectors.
1: Okay, so we import the feed. So it's not as if...
0: This grass-fed... Yeah.
1: Okay, I see what you mean, right. So we a... don't have
0: enough grass to feed the cattle here, but we have that brand abroad, which is great for like a selling point. So the cattle are out like on the grass in the summer and then obviously this silage cut, they get a bit of that, but there's not enough. So there's a lot of imported soy maize to, to feed them as well.
1: And then talking about the fertiliser as well and those kind of inputs, like was it earlier this year with fertiliser went sky high? Yeah. So farmers are feeling like they're also dealing with that rising costs
0: exactly the stress and the pressure and like I think for um people maybe who, de- who aren't from like a farming background as well it's difficult to explain the stress the stress and pressure you have when you're responsible for livestock because mm-hmm. if you don't have the feed are they go- like going to get sick and die like that's the the amount of pressure pressure and stress that that causes
1: of things you can't control yourself yeah, yeah. it's
0: so awful and I think that, like, the rise in fertiliser costs and everything was kind of a show of, like, we need to make this more sustainable. Like, this model is not sustainable. We can't feed the cattle with what we have here. We rely on so many imports to feed the cattle, not to mention the imports that we rely on to feed ourselves. It's not a sustainable model. And then, like, the kind of bread and butter fertiliser for Irish farms is bags of what people call ten ten twenty. So it's like mm-hmm. nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. And ten parts this, ten parts this, twenty parts this, and like with nitrogen, there's, it releases a lot of emissions to produce it, and um, so it's not sustainable in that sense. But it is like I think it's taken from air and turned into a chemical fertilizer, so it's not like it's going to run out, you know. But say phosphorus is taken from rock, so that's like not a renewable source. What's the plan when it's gone? If we're so reliant on it, then what is the plan? Mm-hmm. Peak phosphorus is twenty fifty. It's not going to be around forever. The system that we have is completely unsustainable. And ultimately, politicians not being able to deal with all of these realities and say, because it's not like we, it's, we can just go, oh, we'll just throw the farming communities to the wall. <laughs> you know, because it's too late and we didn't bother. Like, we need them to eat. And that was something that was so evident in the pandemic. Essential workers are supermarkets, farmers, everywhere where we get our food. So it's not like, I think as farmers, though, we need to realise that like, we actually do have a kind of power that we don't use and that is that we do hold the food, we're absolutely essential more than anything else. So it's high time the government started planning for the sector, how are we going to protect the sector and also how are we going to feed ourselves, all of those bits.
1: (laughs) Yeah I actually, I can remember during the pandemic wasn't there that whole new story about the fruit pickers, people were so shocked that you know that they had to almost like bring in people from other countries because we need people to pick the fruit because if people don't pick the fruit, it's going to go bad. And it was just amazing to realise, I think, for a lot of people, how our food is produced and maybe how distant we are from it.
0: Yeah, so you to know? disconnect. Yeah.
1: And then with the meat plants and the workers around COVID and the terrible conditions, it kind of felt like we were on the cusp of realising something as a nation. <laughs> <laughs> and <Yeah>. then unfortunately, <laughs> that seemed to pass.
0: I know. And know? then it felt like that with the, with the war as well. Like, oh, yeah. now we'll realise.
1: Yeah, of course, with Ukraine, yeah, and, and the fertiliser, yeah. yeah.
0: But no, it, it seems like... Do you know what I think it's like? It's not a very good analogy, but it's like smoking. It's like there's never an immediate threat in the moment, but eventually it'll kill you. So, like, without the immediate threat, it's like tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah, kind yeah. of just our human nature as well, and it's so the nature yeah. of politics, like, trying to get the vote tomorrow, not make the best plan for the next generation or whatever. yeah Yeah. it's just that kind of short-sightedness I suppose the last argument that comes up a lot is the like what about China yeah China aren't doing it and kind
1: of like what's the point if we reduce our emissions we're so tiny and then another country increases theirs what's the whole point this is pointless
0: yeah and it's like I suppose for one (laughs) another terrible analogy would be like if I was like (laughs) oh well Richard killed 10 people so I'm only killing this one person it's not a good argument murder <laughs> um, and then I all the analogies it's, it's <laughs> also so like it's like it's almost competitive like well they're doing this and they're going to make loads of money out so we're going to do that too but it's like it's almost like their climate thing over here and ours here and then we're hearing another cl- climate scientist talking about something to do with like the analogy that they used was we're all in the same boat so it's not like oh we won't you know if the, if the boat's filling up with water you're not going to be like if China aren't going to shovel water out we're just going to sit here and let it fill up because who's that going to help, you know? Um, It's just short-sighted. And obviously, if every country's meeting its targets, China's more likely to. If nobody is, China's less likely to. And, like, we should stop being so concerned about China, we're not even getting it right ourselves. Like I said, now we're aiming to fail in terms of reaching our targets. That's the state we're in. And that's, like, with the Green Party in government. So it's pretty chronic.
1: And so the standoff, I mean, from an outsider perspective, it seemed like it was Department of Agriculture versus the Department of the Environment. Is that where the talks were happening last week?
0: It did seem like that. It seemed like it was Charlie McConalogue and Eamon Ryan meeting up and kind of like, you know, how do we both keep our voters happy kind of a conversation rather mm. than like, I think what everybody would hope is that it would be what's the best decision to make here? Like, I just, I sometimes think as well with all of the discussion and everything that's gone over the last week, it's like, you always get asked when you're kind of saying what I'm saying, like we need to reduce our emissions. Well, what about this? China, this, that, all the rest, but it? it's like, what's the what's the plan if we're not going to reduce our emissions? Why isn't that question being asked? Because yeah. the disaster is just unbelievable, like parts of the world becoming completely uninhabitable because of global warming like that. It's like it's not an immediate threat to us because if it warmed up a bit here, we'd be able to grow things like soy, figs a bit better, like it would kind of it wouldn't result in us not being able to live Mm. in the country that we live in. But that is the reality for lots of people. And we contribute to that by releasing so many emissions when we don't have to. So it's really like a massive human rights issue. And then when all of those people have to flee that area, then of course there are people going, you know, mass immigration. And the people here, TDs, saying, how's our own first? Like the whole thing (laughs) is so utterly disgraceful.
1: And I can remember, I think this was back in the local election campaign, did you go to a farmer's meeting somewhere and you had to go up and say that you thought that you need to reduce emissions mm. and that, you know, you got a bad reception, <laughs> but that afterwards people came up to you being like, fair play for actually saying it, because no other politician would admit it. <laughs> they all just yeah. pretend. Yeah. And, <laughs> that, and that kind of seems to be the government policy around it, which is like, to not really admit the scale of the problem yeah. or provide a solution. And then you do get this misinformation and talking points. It's kind of like the lobbyists are controlling the conversation. Yeah. The government isn't throwing its weight behind the climate plan. Yeah. And so we're left in this kind of mess.
0: That's it. it actually reminds me a little bit of do you remember during repeal? Like when you might be I remember like you could be like in the supermarket or something in your repeal jumper or in a vote yes badge or something you'd have somebody like to kind of whispering like i would be voting yes (laughs) yeah and it's almost like that in the agriculture sector people say quietly to you I agree with you fair play to you like the I think some of the a lot of the I feel like a lot of people think that because we're farmers we're stupid and we don't get it and you can kind of just be like yeah no we won't do that like farmers actually know more than anyone that they're going to have to reduce their emissions I know that from talking to them and being completely honest with them I'm yet to meet somebody who's just doesn't get it, you know? Um, and the fact that people are fighting against it is because there is no other plan in place. Yeah. And it's like I said, that pressure when you've livestock, when you need to make a living, it's like, like all of us, that it's like a defence comes in. Whereas if there was a plan in place, people know the reality. They know it's going to have to be done. Um, what they need is support. And, like, that's the really annoying thing about other parties then who are like, doing the same thing during his government, like, oh, mm. anything to placate the public. Jennifer, uh, our climate spokesperson, she's on the climate committee and she tried several times to get a definition of a just transition into the climate action bill, rejected every time by Minister Eamon Ryan. So it's like, that stuff needs to be enshrined in law, that there's a protection for farmers. And I think, like, I think that politicians underestimate the general public sometimes. And what i think people would prefer right now is a plan a ring fence just, just transition fund for the sector and here's how we're going to do it rather than just like fighting fire with fire
2: is that no that's a really good point i suppose yeah. like so w- what are you presenting as a solution what is a just transition for you how how are you helping farmers make this massive massive radical change
0: so obviously the first thing that has to happen with any kind of policy change and we do need a radical one for climate um so the well you need the ambition all of those bits and the proper engagement with farming communities. So, like I said, I meet regularly with the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farm Association, the Irish Farm Association, other groups, and I do regularly ask them for their input on this. How should it be done? I always say I'm not going to have the conversation about will we or won't we reduce our emissions. We absolutely have to reduce our emissions. What I'd like to talk to you about is how should that best be done? There's, there's a couple of things we need to do. So, disincentivise the intensification of livestock mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. payments from government. That is, within the government's control, it's kind of outrageous that they're still doing that so you get docked payments if you grow food for example and you get more payments if you like spend lots of money rock breaking the entire area and putting more cattle on it oh that like,
1: makes sense It's a constant rock constant rock breaking on. everyone and it's like and it's so expensive to hire rock breakers so it must pay like there must be it's so confusing it's so, does it
0: yeah, yeah. um and it's and, and like that then feeds into a cultural thing of wanting more like flat fields, loads of livestock on it to be a kind of successful farmer. Like it all feeds into it. Mm-hmm. But what we need to do is, like I said, all farms are small businesses as well. Make sure that it's financially rewarding to not do that. And that will pay off for the government, the taxpayer, everybody, because we need to do that. Um, so yeah, financially incentivizing things like um, more tillage, more... Uh, food grade crops for humans to consume plus you know feed grade for animal consumption instead of importing all of that and just exporting more meat and dairy Um, but a way that I think they should change it more radically is that to say we don't subsidize it at this level where the producer is because then You can only sell a litre of milk for what it actually costs you to produce it. Otherwise, it's not financially viable for you to do it. And that actually gives power back to the farmer, even though the thought of, you know, the the subsidy being removed is terrifying. It would have to be done in a a proper planned out way. Mm -hmm. But that would actually, I think, kind of restore a bit of justice to the whole food system in Ireland. And then if the government are going to subsidise, then it has to be for a consumer. The supermarket is winning out of this model so much and that's it's not a it's not a clever way to structure your food system in a country and it's not a just way either
2: yeah and I think this is back to the point we were just talking about earlier I think again he's like yeah it's the climate lens has really helped us understand what the farming model is and ask questions about it because mm-hmm. small farmers in particular are like they're, they're stuck in this horrible system whereby like they, they they basically have control over nothing yeah. so your fertilizer costs can be whatever your production costs can be whatever mm. and what you're getting for that is is not representative <laughs> of the work you're putting in and you're left completely at the hands of meat factory meat industry retailers and yeah. um, so like I, I suppose it's just interesting whereby agriculture seems to be so important and then um so powerful but then if you look at the actual everyday farmer, like they're just powerless, they're just stuck in a system. Yeah. And you can see why any change is therefore terrifying because you're just getting by yeah. currently.
1: Yeah, and then there's such a. And then I guess for someone who isn't a farmer or involved in farming, that's not the common perception of farmers from the outside. Do you no. know what I mean? It's the IFA. It's the big yeah, yeah. farming big, union. They're yeah, a big yeah. monolith. They're they're one, one voice kind of an idea.
0: This is it. I know it's like saying, oh, we need to have less cattle. It's like, you're not supposed to say it. It's the same as you're not supposed to say that the IFA do not represent all farmers, but they don't. That is a fact. And they should be called out in it. Mm-hmm. It reminds me so much of the fishing sector in Ireland as well. It's like the big players, the ones who are really like milking it, (laughs) um, are really well represented by the IFA. And then the smaller farmer actually really isn't, but they do pay lip service to it. You know, like where was the outcry like this for um, the wool market? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? They don't represent all farming groups. They really don't. But they will like put out a press release at the time or kind of pretend that they're doing it. But there's not the same like push and actually getting results. And you see that in the with the fishing producer organizations it was a fascinating thing for me to realize when after the election that like at those kind of decision-making tables with the minister of agriculture and stuff you could only go along if you're a like accredited by the department of agriculture producer organization so it was one of them in ireland that in my opinion was really representing a small group of big uh, fishing companies and not re- representing the vast majority of the fishing fleet in Ireland, the people working the area, um, the inshore sector. And they kind of just get away with it by saying, oh, no, we're representing all of the groups, but none of the things that they're pushing benefit the inshore fishing sector. And it's just the same thing that we've seen in housing, in health. It's like big business has done so well. There's investor funds, private health care. And in here, it's like the big agri-industry, the fertiliser companies and a few uh, big farms not the majority of people. Mm -hmm. The same, it's like a playbook that goes out in every department, um, but a lot of people don't associate it with agriculture because, like you say, people feel quite removed from their food production.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a point. And I think something that you brought up a lot, and I hear more people talking about it now, is pitching environmentalists against farmers. Like, that was kind of the narrative, and it's so unhelpful.
0: Yeah, and really amped up in the last few weeks, didn't it? Mm just ridiculous yeah and people yeah people saying that you don't you don't understand rural Ireland you don't understand farmers whatever it's like who do they think they're helping what's the plan <laughs> yeah. when you know food supplies affected climates affected soil degraded water quality destroyed like
1: yeah.
0: what is their actual plan
2: so forestry is something we've been trying to bring up an awful lot recently. Um, so like, obviously, I think like an absolute common sense level, we all know this matters is that f- besides being a, a very liquidive industry in itself, forestry is good because it is a good land use. Like our, uh, our levels of afforestation are still very low in Ireland, but it's it's carbon um, sequestration. sequestration. Um, so yeah, what were the type of things you've been, been bringing up recently on that?
0: Um, I suppose we all know of the incredible backlog in the sector. So to plant or to fell trees, it's very difficult to get a license. So everything's being delayed and held up and people are leaving the industry. And I think there is an important conversation to have around forestry as well. And that a lot of people say we don't want Sitka mm. plantations. And I understand that because it is kind of like a biodiversity dead zone. And one of the benefits of planting more trees is that we increase. When we talk about the climate crisis. We also have a massive biodiversity crisis. But my own personal opinion is that we should have some forestry for for industry. Like, there's no point in importing uh, timber from other countries for construction and stuff yes, like that. I yeah, think yeah. we should grow yeah. it here. I think the obvious thing to do is with every... And it, there always is a certain percentage that, like, when you plant this much... Um, for industry, you have to plant this much native broadleaf. We need to up that and financially reward it through the mm-hmm. department um, and encourage farmers to plant trees rather than intensively stock or to do both um it's an obvious thing to do like you say to sequester carbon and like in terms of biodiversity as well I think if you imagine what Ireland was like before the kind of agricultural revolution here it was basically covered in trees like Mm. West Cork Kerry would have been basically like rainforested area and then when you kind of fast forward to now there's no trees really yep. and it's all grassland so it's all one crop of like italian ryegrass with a really short root. yes they're just the biodiversity decline has been phenomenal even i think of when we were younger and we'd go up to dublin or Meath to see our grandparents and the car would be absolutely covered in insects and i drive them down to dublin every week now and that's not the that's case okay. yeah. and that's so worrying because that's like in quite a short period of time in my mm-hmm. lifetime um so we have to increased biodiversity and like native irish trees is what was you know things like oak ash elder all of those things need to be planted up to kind of try and recreate or to protect a lot of our our species Mm -hmm. and basically if we're trying to meet our targets there's an obvious mathematical thing here that's like how do we sequester more carbon to offset the stuff that we will Uh, because i do think like that i think we should have some sicker plantations i think we should have some dairy i think we have should have some beef but we do it in a way where we meet our targets um, and there's no point in being too kind of, it's a difficult one as well because obviously and loads of people actually ask me on Instagram if I'm a vegan. <laughs> um, and I can see why people think that because obviously I'm always on about climate and agriculture, mm-hmm. but like from uh, my experience growing up on a farm that doesn't use those chemical applications, we use the manure from the cattle to fertilise the seed crops yeah. and we planted half of the farm in native broadleaf trees to kind of offset our carbon but if we didn't have the cattle it would be more difficult to fertilise the mm-hmm. seed crops yes. yeah, and yeah. I think that it, that choice outweighs the choice of applying chemicals to it okay. um, so I think like we need that as, as a part of a, a system that's resilient and sustainable
2: yeah absolutely and I think some of the Likely back to forestry there. I yeah. think like one of the reasons like we're raising this as well as besides with like it's a like it's a win win win. Like there's there's no reason we <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be doing this. But currently, and um, the 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 afforestation affer- rate is at like twenty five percent of yeah. what the government wanted to be. Yeah. So because of the way their system is set up, it's a combination of massive delays in the licensing uh, process and the what we talked about there, the types of incentives they're giving. So they're not properly incentivizing. Tree planting among farmers. So they're like the target was 8,000 hectares a year in the the program for government. They're currently doing two. Um, And this is a time when we're in a biodiversity and climate crisis. And also the fact is that like the afforestation rate has been decreasing over the past number of years and is less under this green government than it was before.
0: It's so sad, isn't it? I think for so many people voting green, like it's like, oh, you'd think for one that the bare minimum is we'd reach our mission targets and start planting more trees even if that's a small amount more we're planting less trees and we're aiming to not meet our targets it's so tragic and it's yeah it's such a, a win-win situation if they could deal with the backlog um, incentivise people to plant trees it's just such a no-brainer mm. <laughs> there's no objections to it <laughs> it's like you have to kind of surmise they just don't care I don't know
2: yeah hey hey hey. hey, Hey, hey,
1: snoring in the background
2: like in terms of like we brought up this idea of incentives as well look so like the idea is like obviously the big headline stuff is all you want to decrease the national herd but like it's it's the thing whereby we want like everybody surely wants farmers to make the same amount of money or maybe make even more money but just do it differently. Yeah. So it doesn't, like, it, it's just, it seems the thing that happens in a vacuum is that you only seem to be making money via certain methods Yeah. and not via Others. horticulture, not via forestry, yeah. not via upland farming, not via wool.
1: Yeah. And the headline, I think the next day after that, deal was reached was charlie mcconnell no farmer will have to reduce his herd do you know like it's, it's just the top line it, that's all that matters no, that's yeah. all farming
0: is i know and one of those things it's actually quite funny when you think about it this oh do you want to reduce call the herd call the herd they're saying as if as if like we want to go out shooting all the cattle in the head and it's like for one if we start reducing the herd now it's like you don't inseminate as much this yeah, year yeah, and you've yeah, got yeah. less the next year like that's the very obvious thing to do not doing that now means at some point they may have to cull the herd so who's yeah. trying to cull the herd not us yeah. and then that's the other part the yeah. other point is yeah. like like people say that like an outrage at me and I'm like like I grew up on a farm we do kill cattle
2: right. well, as a part of the, thousands the practice of thousands of, kills, of
0: get. kills all the time so this kind of outrage at the suggestion of culling is a bit rich yeah. and hilarious. <laughs>
1: and it is funny that that is yeah, that has become the big issue. Yeah, it's it's funny how certain talking points come yeah. out again and again and even if there's not much sense behind them.
0: None. It's just pure it's so emotive that line, pulling yeah. the herd. Mm-hmm. And like it is worth pointing out that I think this policy will result in that.
1: If we keep going the way we are there will have to be They're
0: doing it in Holland. And it's so funny, they're doing it in Holland Uh, They had to cull the herd to reduce their emissions. And then Holland have invested in dairy here so they can get the money from it but not release the emissions. And they're expanding their horticulture. We import almost all of our organic veg from Holland and we've got a better growing climate than them. They're the second biggest producer of vegetables in the world after America. Much smaller country than us with not as favourable soil quality or climate. And that's what they're doing. It's very clever. And here's us going to front the fines and we won't even keep all of the profits of that in the country yeah really stupid
1: and short-sighted yeah yeah and tunnel vision isn't it it's like it's beef and dairy yeah and And then claiming
0: that that's pro-farmer at the end of it all unbelievable
2: okay so like the problem another problem with this is that the deal was made by a few ministers a few male ministers as it so happens and um, quietly after the doll was finished because mm. they refused to do it yeah when it's sitting so come back in september I was like we're obviously not going to let this be forgotten Um i suppose like like the push has to be to for full accountability around what the actual plan is going to be because like we, we don't know what the plan is going to be and that's only going to stoke more fear
0: exactly they've done no consultation no engagement and i think like On a positive note, Ireland is like such an agricultural country. We always have been and really pride ourselves in it. And I think what the ministers need to recognise is that we should be the ones leading the changes and being the best at it because we have the skills, we have the knowledge, we have the the land, the climate, everything. Mm. And of course, I think the agricultural sector would like to be a part of something positive now. You know, there's been a lot of negativity around this and we really should be leading the way on this. You know, we've got so many, like, even agricultural degrees and masters and stuff going on. And a lot of that's been focused on how to make dairy more efficient. Whereas we can be looking at, you know, how do we lead the way in terms of climate action and food production? And that would be such an exciting space for Ireland to be in. And it would really carry on that brand that we have of being this green agricultural Mm -hmm. country and something we could be so proud of um so we will be i suppose highlighting to them that that's what they should be doing but also like from a a very practical like farm level we have no idea what these cuts mean now so it's 25 how much do i have to reduce on my farm and if i'm one of those was speaking to a farmer the other day who's um involved in beef farming and they have you know been kind of doing things like introducing the multi-species swords they've been reducing their chemical inputs because they recognize the need to do that and that's just their own choice on their farm and a lot of people are doing that anyway but like will they then have to reduce more would they be better off having not done that like there's all of these different questions that people have if I have a hundred cattle am I going to have to reduce mine by more than somebody who has five cattle we have none of the actual practical answers and nobody willing to talk about how it's going to be done. It's, it's the same thing. You'll see politicians just trying to hide away from having the conversations that we need to have um, instead of just saying what needs to be said and making sure that people are supported to do it. When we're talking about ring-fenced money to help with this transition, is it going to be done in a way that's like a percentage? If What is the percentage of your income that it affects? And then a percentage of that is compensated. And then do you have to use that to plant trees? Like, mm-hmm. what is the plan? But they can't come up with a good plan until they engage with all of the different types of farms. And it can't just be, what do the IFA go in and say that they want? <laughs> do you know? Mm-hmm. There has to be a proper consultation. Um, and that can and should be done. Cool. Yeah. You
2: got it there?
0: Yeah, that's good. That's- Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. By Rice, taken from YouTube audio library.